This morning, we are going to continue our study on the five solas of the Reformation, the five pillars of the Christian faith that came out of the Reformation. Uh, and if you notice, the uh, last two last two weeks we looked at sola gratia and sola fida, or sola fide. Uh, for those of you who, uh, who don't realize, or maybe you realize but haven't thought about that, uh, this is Latin. Uh, this was written, uh, the, uh, the main language coming out of, uh, or I'm sorry, the main language of the church at the time of the Reformation was Latin. Uh, and so as these pillars of the Reformation came out, they were, they were written uh, as academic, uh, uh, academic uh, documents that were put out to the church. And so uh, they came out. Uh, in Latin, and so that's what this is, and, and sola gratia, grace alone, sola means alone, uh, and then we have grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, and glory alone, for the glory of God alone. Uh, well, today we're going to be looking at sola scriptura, uh, the scripture alone, and this was probably, this was probably the, the biggest hurdle for the Reformation, because scripture alone that, that this idea of the authority that we have for our faith is based upon Scripture and Scripture alone is not taught explicitly in Scripture. It is something, the principles are there, the principles are there, but it is not explicit in Scripture. And so for the Roman Catholic Church, this is where they say, well, if you're going to say in Scripture alone, that our, our faith is, is based upon the authority of Scripture alone, then you have to acknowledge that that principle is not taught by Scripture. Uh, and so where, where Martin Luther and the Reformers landed was that, that we understand that God's Word and God's Word alone is authoritative because it is His revealed will to us, then we can say that God's Scripture is our foundation for truth over that of the tradition of the church. And so this is where the rub came for the Protestants uh, and the Roman Catholics, for Martin Luther and Zwingli and John Huss and Wycliffe and all of the reformers. They said we must base our truth and we must base our, our traditions and our worship and everything based upon Scripture rather than the traditions of the church. And so this is where the rub came. This is where the rub came. But as we look at this, as we look at this, the idea of sola scriptura is that scripture alone is our authority concerning faith and practice. That's the basis, that's the principle of scripture alone. Now this was made possible only because the Bible was translated into the common vernacular. Last week we talked about the uh, those things that led to the Protestant Reformation, and we looked at Gutenberg's printing press. We, we, we talked for just a little bit that Gutenberg uh, had invented this thing called the printing press, and all of a sudden you could print things very cheaply and you could distribute them amongst the people. And so the idea that, that Scripture is our authority and Scripture is our sole authority was only made possible because the Bible had been translated, at this point, was being translated into the common vernacular. See, when Jesus walked the earth, everybody spoke 
Greek. And so when the Bible and the New Testament was written, the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. All right, let's try that again. All right, so Jesus spoke Greek. All of the, all of the apostles spoke Greek. All of the known world spoke Greek. That's something that Alexander the Great did that, that is, it was something that, that God did through Alexander the Great. He unified all of civilization with the, Greek, with the Greek language. And by the time of the Roman Empire, by the time of the Roman Empire, the, the Grecian Empire had, fell, had fallen, the Roman Empire comes into power, and they said, you know what, we're not going to change the language because everybody speaks Greek. And so the idea, whenever God sent forth Jesus and God began to compose the New Testament through, through the apostles and through Paul and through Peter and through James, and he began to compose the New Testament, he did so in what language? Greek, because everybody spoke Greek. So what happened, though, when the Western Empire fell, you had the invasion of the, the barbarians from the north, and they spoke German, and they spoke Anglo, and they spoke Saxon, and they spoke all of these foreign languages, well, all of a sudden, not everybody spoke Greek. And so whenever not everybody spoke Greek, they couldn't speak the language. They couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And so the common language of academia, the common language for the priests, was Latin. And so Jerome translated the Bible from Greek to Latin so that he could read it, and so that the priests could read it so that the people in the churches could read it. But then something happened after Jerome's Latin, Jerome's Vulgate, uh, uh, after people no longer spoke Latin, the Bible was never translated into German or Anglo or Saxon. It was never translated into French or Spanish. All we had was Greek and Latin. Well, when... Constantinople fell, and all of the scholarship flooded east. All of a sudden, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Wycliffe and Huss and Zwingli, they began to take these, these transcripts, and they began to translate them. They translated them into German. They translated them into French and Spanish, and they translated them into, into Belgian. They translated them into the language of the people, and then they gave the Bible to the people, and the people could read the Bible for themselves. And then whenever the church began sending missionaries to foreign lands, William Carey goes to India, and he spends three years in India, and he has a grand total of two baptisms. And what a successful ministry, right? But what he does, what he does becomes the bedrock of modern missions. William Carey takes the Bible and he translated it into Hindi. He translates the Bible into the common vernacular of the people. And all of a sudden, the people in India have the Bible in their own language. And, 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 and William Carey began and he established the modern mission movement by saying it is not about missionaries and it is not about going and preaching and going and teaching but the foundation the bedrock of missions 
must be that we get the Bible, we get the Word of God, God's revealed will in the language of the people. And so now whenever, whenever Adoniram Judson goes to Burma, the first thing he does was he takes the Bible and he translates it to Burmese. And whenever we send, when, when, when Hudson Taylor goes to China, he takes the Bible, the Word of God, and he translates it into Chinese. He translates it in, in, into Mandarin, he Cantonese, he translates the Word of God into the language of the people. Because there is a, there's something powerful, something supernatural that is in God's Word. And it is not the words on the page. It is not the ink, it is not the paper, it is not the leather binding. It's the revealed will and revelation of God's word. And so, today we're going to look at sola scriptura. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to the book of Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 31. <clears throat> And from Miletus, I'm sorry, from Miletus, he sent us, he sent to Ephesus and called them elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I was set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not on any account consider my life dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel, the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see me no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revealed will to us. We thank you that as we look at the whole purpose of the whole counsel of God, that you have given us the revelation of your word. The Old Testament, the New Testament. And we see that it is perfect, infallible, inerrant. Lord, may you speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to say something very, very briefly, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, and I want you to listen to me before you ignore me and call me a heretic. The Bible that you hold in your hand is not without error. The Bible that you hold in your hand has mistakes, it has flaws. If you look at the last chapter of Mark, last 11 or so verses, be a little asterisk, and it says the earliest, most reliable manuscripts don't contain this section of Scripture. You look at other passages in, in, in our English translation, and there are some things that are just lost in translation. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know this passage, we read this passage, we memorize this passage. 
But when we understand that language does not always translate very, very smoothly and very easily, whenever we read the original Greek and it says, for God gave his only begotten son, there's no real good way to translate that, that Greek word that means one and only or only begotten. or It, it has a connotation of unique, that there's no one else like him. And so John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, he gave his, his one and only son. Not his only son because he could have had many kids, but he only had one. But he gave his one and only son in that Jesus is the only one like his kind. There is no one who is 100% God, 100% man. There is no one who has the, the characteristics and the attributes and the, the deity of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his unique, his one and only, the only one of its kind. And so we see that the English translation is, is, is fallible. Not because God's word is fallible, but because what we have, and, and as it is disseminated through years and years and years, thousands and thousands of years, that, that people make mistakes. There are translatory errors in Scripture. There are punctuations in manuscripts that, that, that a period gets moved or, or, or something gets moved. But there's a Scripture that says that, that in the end of days, that not a single jot or tittle, that is the, the smallest stroke of the pen in the Hebrew language, that not a jot or tittle will pass away. What the Word of God is saying is that in the end, that God's Word will stand. And so while I say to you that our English Bible or our Spanish Bible, Mr. Lephus, is, with, is not without error. We understand that God's word is without error, that it is infallible. The original language in which God, and the original document, the original autograph that God gave his people is without error. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is perfect as he gave it to us. That being said, that being said, we understand that God's Word is not a history book. The Bible that we read today is not a textbook. It is not a science book. It is a spiritual book concerning matters of faith and practice. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, I want to see, I want you to see the, the idea and the principle behind Scripture alone. And so we see uh, that, that Scripture alone, uh, whenever the, the Paul says, I do not cease from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's Word, that he is speaking about God's Word, that, he is, that, that I do not seek to declare to you. If we look back at Acts chapter, uh, we look back at Acts chapter 20, verse 35, uh, we see, where did it go? Acts chapter 20, verse 35. I'm sorry, verse 25. And now behold, I know that among you of, of whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, therefore I testify you, verse 26, this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says this about the whole counsel of God. It says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture 
or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether is new revelation of the Spirit or is the traditions of men. This is the idea of Scripture alone. And so Paul is leaving the church at Ephesus. And as he leaves the church at Ephesus, he's giving his, his farewell address to the church. He's spent more time at the church at Ephesus than he spent with any other church. He spent more time teaching them, more time instructing them. In fact, if you look at the book of Ephesians, you can see that the book of Ephesians is very deep. It's very theological. It deals with, with very complex issues of theology and doctrine. Why? Because Paul spent a year and a half with the people at Ephesus, and he knew that he could give them the deep things of God's word because he had been pouring into them these deep theological and doctrinal truths. And so as Paul is giving his farewell address to the church at Ephesus, he says a couple things. He says, one, I know that whenever I leave, that I'm going to encounter trials and tribulation because hardships are going to come upon me because such is the plight for those who follow Christ. But he also says this. He says, as I leave you, I leave you innocent of your blood. Why? Because I have declared to you, I have declared to you the whole counsel of God's word. I have given to you the whole purpose of God's word. And so Paul is saying that I have delivered to you all that God has revealed to me to give to you. Paul also admonishes young Timothy, who will become the pastor at the church at Ephesus after Paul. Timothy will. And I want us to listen how Paul admonishes Timothy as he takes over his ministry at Ephesus. Ephesians, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, we understand that Paul leaves Ephesians, Paul leaves Ephesus, and as he leaves Ephesus, he sends Timothy in his place to become the pastor there. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this, Timothy, as you are taking over the pastorate at Ephesus, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a workman who does, who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately what? The word of truth. Because the only thing that is authoritative within the church is God's word. It is not the traditions of the church. It is not the Talmud. It is not the, it is not, not the Mishnah. It is not anything man-made. It is not any, any tradition that we have come to. You see, we as Baptists are just as guilty as our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters whenever we make the statement, well, we've never done it this way before. Well, this is how we've always done it. You know, what does God's word say about this? Paul admonished Timothy. He said, I have declared to them the whole counsel of God. Now I am leaving you as the pastor, as the leader, as the teacher, and you need to study, be diligent to show yourselves a workman who is approved, handling accurately the word of God. And as you rightly divide God's word, may you communicate the truth of God's word. Later on, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy why it is so important to study God's word. Because he says all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. He says, Timothy, study God's word. Now it's interesting. Timothy did not have 
the New Testament. Timothy only had the Old Testament and possibly some of the gospel writings. But he said, study, show yourself approved, handling accurately the word of God. And through the first 200 years of the church, letters from Paul, letters from Peter, letters from James began circulating throughout the early church, letters from John began circulating throughout the early church. The gospel according to Matthew, a disciple of Jesus. The gospel according to John Mark, a direct disciple of the Apostle Paul. The gospel according to Luke, a direct disciple of Peter. The gospel according to John, the beloved disciple, began to circulate throughout the early church. And so they began to carry with them the same authority of the apostles themselves who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus. And by the early, by the early second century, by the early second century, we had a, a full complement of the New Testament. As early as the second century, we had all of the writings that we have in the New Testament circulating throughout the early church. And so the Word of God began to take form. God's revealed will began to take form. And Scripture plays a, a dual role in the life of the believer. <clears throat> and many of us have experienced that dual role. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12. You'll see uh, the author of Hebrews unpack this for us in verse 12. He says this. He says, For the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of man. Have you ever read God's Word and God added a verse? I'm serious. Have you ever read God's Word and, and you've read a passage that you've read 150 times? And then all of a sudden, you read it for the 151st time, and you're like, wait a second. That wasn't there before. I've read this a million times. I know this passage backwards and forwards. This passage was not there before. Why? Because God's Word is living and active. Now, 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 now understand what I'm saying. The words aren't added to the page. It still says what it always says, and it will always say what it says. But what God does is in the heart of us, his believers, he reveals things. It's living and it's active. Have you ever read a passage one day and, and, and it speaks to your heart one way? And then, and then six months later you read the same passage and all of a sudden it speaks to your heart completely differently? Because God's word is living and active. And it carries with it two purposes. And I want us to see these two purposes in God's word. It carries with it first the purpose of correction, reproof. All scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for correction, reproof, rebuke, for righteousness, training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. The word of God acts to correct us when we do wrong. The word of God says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The word of God says, abstain from immorality. The word of God says, flee your youthful lust. The word of God 
gives us instruction. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation provides a way of escape, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Bible gives us instructions and corrections. It tells us, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. The Bible gives us instructions and corrects us. And, and when we read God's word, it has the Holy Spirit has a way of convicting us through his word, to tell us that you know that, that we stand guilty and that we are, we are sinners. And when you read God's word and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you read whenever Jesus said, you have heard, do not commit murder. But I say if anyone looks at his brother with hatred in his heart, he's already committed murder. There is a conviction that comes upon us because God word, God's word works conviction and correction, reproof, rebuke. And it tells us that there is a standard that God has, and that standard is righteousness. And that standard is perfection. Whenever God's word says, be ye perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect, we read that and we say, I am not perfect. I need to be corrected. I need to be rebuked. But God's word is a two-edged sword. There are times when we know Times when we know that we have failed. Times when we know that we have made mistakes. Times whenever we are broken. And we read God's word. And we see the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says, where are they that condemn you? Neither then do I go and sin no more. Whenever we read in God's word, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Whenever we read in God's word, Jesus looking at Peter after he had denied him three times, and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter grieved in his heart, said, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. We read in God's word that God is gracious He's abounding in loving kindness. The judgment in his strange word. We read in Psalm 103 that, that God will not deal with us according to the depth of our sin, but according to the greatness of his compassion. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us, we read in God's word when Jesus looks at the thief on the cross and he says, today, remember me in paradise. And Jesus looks at him and says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in glory. When Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm coming to your house today, that there is grace and there is mercy. And the word of God is two-edged. It works correction and, repu and re rebuke and reproof that, 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 that we may see our sin. But it also works grace and compassion, and love, and mercy, so that when we see ourselves sinners, we see God as a God of grace, and mercy, and love. It is both the sharp edge of rebuke, and the healing edge of the surgeon's scalpel. It is encouragement, grace, and mercy correction, reproof, rebuke. As the church has been given God's revelation 
It is our authority for all things, faith and practice. It's interesting, in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word of God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, the Word was with God. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten, full of faith and truth. And you read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that He, being Jesus, is the very revelation of God. The exact radiance of His glory. In Revelation chapter 19, I want you to see this. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. Sorry, Chris, I added these late. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. John the Revelator writes this in chapter 19, verse 11. He said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. His righteousness, in his righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head there are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Listen to verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called, what? The Word of God. The Word of God, as Jesus is given that name, he's given it in John chapter 1, he's given it in Revelation, he's given it in the Old Testament. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him, nothing that was made was made apart from him. In John, in Genesis chapter 1, it said, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The mechanism of creation was the word of God. If you go look back through Genesis 1, every time God created, he did, those, he did so through the spoken word. Jesus is the word of God. And so, here's the question. Okay, preacher, connect the dots for me. What does it mean that Jesus is the word of God and that, and that this Bible that we have is the word of God? Make that connection for me. The word of God is God's revelation to us. God revealed all that we know about God, we know today in our present day and age, we know through God's word. Nothing that we know about God do we know apart from God's word. In the days of Paul, Peter, James, John, all they knew about God, they knew through Jesus. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, gave us His revelation, the revelation of God to man, was manifested to us in the pages of the Bible. It is our authority. It is our authority for all things, faith and practice. That is why I, as a preacher, preach and teach expositionally. This this topical thing that I've been doing these last three weeks is really hard for me. I've been doing, you know, preaching on grace and preaching on faith. I'll preach on scripture today. Next week it'll be, I'll preach on Christ. The following week it'll be the glory of God. This is really hard for me because I am, I am used to and I believe that God's word is perfect and that God's word is, is designed to be taught expositionally. That means chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I believe for that reason, for that reason, I will deal with topics as they come up in scripture. For that reason, I will never avoid a topic that is in God's Word. I will never, Charles Stanley said, spirit-anointed preaching compromises no truth, avoids no subject, and fears no reaction. 
I can't cherry pick what I preach about. Whenever God's word teaches about giving and how we ought to handle money, I will deal with that. When God's word teaches us about, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I will deal with that. Whenever God's word teaches about predestination and election, I will deal with that according to God's word. It is my responsibility to rightly divide God's word, to study, to show myself, to prove the workman who is handling accurately the word of God. If I believe God's word is sufficient, then I will teach God's word. So, we've looked at what sola scriptura means. Let us look very, very briefly at what it does not mean. Remember, I said at the very beginning, this is a spiritual book. This is not a history book. This is not a science book. This is not a textbook. That means that the Bible is not authoritative on microbiology. Hear me, church. The Bible is not authoritative on physics. The Bible can give us biblical truth about the creation of the universe, but the Bible is not going to speak about string theory. The Bible is not going to teach us about, about alternate dimensions, and, and it's not going to teach us about uh, about astronomy. The Bible is not going to teach us, the Bible is not going to teach us about things that the Bible has no intention of teaching. It is not a science book, it is not a textbook, it is not a history book. There are passages in Scripture that are, that are by definition poetry, narrative, that are by definition prophetic. There are texts in the, in the Scripture that are descriptive. There are texts in the Scripture that are prescriptive. Whenever we read about Judah and his immoral relationships with his daughter-in-law Tamar, that is descriptive, not prescriptive. And we must read the Bible as the Bible was intended to be a spiritual book, not a textbook, not a history book, not a science book. The Bible is not authoritative on microbiology. The Bible's not authoritative on physics. Quit trying to make it. The Bible's not authoritative on history. Quit trying to make it. Whenever it says this king reigned about 40 years, you know what? He reigned about 40 years. 38 years is about 40 years. 42 years is about 40 years. So whenever, whenever these, these literacists, they go and they, they take the scripture and they, they start mapping things backwards and they say, oh, well, here's a contradiction, here's a contradiction. Or they say, well, this is whenever you know that Jesus is going to come back because I went and I traced this king and his lineage. Read it for what it is. It's a narrative. And this guy lived about this long and reigned about this long. It's a spiritual book. And it is authoritative in all things, in all things relating to faith and practice. How we ought to live our lives. How we ought to love God and love others. How God has revealed himself to us. So that being said, what is God's authority on? Well, God's authority is on everything related to faith. And God's scripture tells us this. And we can take this to the bank. Because science supports and gives credibility to this. Every one of us is going to die. You can take that to the bank. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for a man to die once and to face the judgment. It also tells us 
that God is the God of righteousness and he is a holy and just judge. And as we die and stand before that holy and just judge, we will stand before him condemned. John chapter 3, verse 18 says, all who, who, uh, all who do not have the Son, do not know the Son, stand condemned already. That we stand before God condemned, not because of anything other than our sin. It says in Romans chapter 3 that we have all sinned and come short of God's glory. And that we stand before a holy and just God condemned. But the scripture also says, that God demonstrated his great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we stood condemned, Christ died for us. It says in Romans chapter 10 that all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And he says, all those who call upon me, I will in no wise cast them out. Salvation is free free gift of God, Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But it is not cheap. It cost Jesus all that he had. The scripture tells us that as he hung upon the cross, he said it is finished and yielded up his spirit. He died the death you and I deserve to die. And the scripture is authoritative on matters of faith. And it says that apart from a relationship with Jesus, apart from faith and faith alone in Jesus and in Jesus alone, that we will die and spend eternity in a Christless hell. The Bible may not be authoritative on microbiology, but it is authoritative on that. It is authoritative on our eternity. And the Bible says, faith in Jesus and Jesus alone is what is required for salvation. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us your word. That it is by your word and your word alone that we can place our authority. That the issue of authority is not within the Baptist church. It's not within our denomination. It is not within the authority of a pastor or teacher, but our authority on all things faith and practice are found in your revealed word, how you have given it to us, you have revealed to us who you are, your character, your compassion, your love, your grace, your mercy, and we see that evident in the person of Jesus, and as he died, as he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and as he rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave. We know that we can place our faith and trust in him. And he said, come to me all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If that's you this morning, if you need to give your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to come. Maybe this morning, you simply needed to be reminded of God's power. The purpose, the role of God's word, how it is there to correct us when we're wrong. It's there to encourage us, to strengthen us when we're hurting. 
Maybe this morning you've been encouraged by God's word. Maybe to a to a deeper commitment to love God's word, read God's word, study God's word. Maybe God has spoken to your heart this morning to become a part of what we're doing right here at Redeemer. Whatever it is that God's spoken to your heart, may today be the day of decision. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen.